Welcome. Today is March 17, 2022, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy. You can find our work at www.hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a Hoover Fellow and member of the Working Group, and today I am pleased to be joined by Anna Borshevskaya, who is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, focusing on Russia's policy toward the Middle East. Anna is also the author of the excellent new book, Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's Absence, which chronicles the Russian military intervention in Syria beginning in 2015, and that continues to this day. She's also a close observer of Russian policy more generally and has written much about the ongoing war in Ukraine. So Anna is really the ideal guest to have on to help us make sense of both the Russian intervention in Syria and in Ukraine, as well as the relationship between these two. So Anna, thank you very much for coming on the Caravan podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Great. So as I mentioned, I want us to talk about both the, the crisis in, in Ukraine as well as the, the intervention in Syria, since it seems to me that the two are, are in fact related. They speak to Moscow's growing geopolitical ambitions, a growing defiance and pushing back against the West in favor of friendly autocracies. Uh, but there's, of course, much more to it than that. Uh, I thought I'd kick us off by bringing up something that I noticed in President Putin's speech on February 24th, in which he announced and sought to justify the incursion into Ukraine. And what was interesting to me was that he actually referred to Syria on two occasions. Uh, and this is what he said on one of those. Uh, after he criticized Western support for the armed opposition to President Assad of Syria. Quote, in 2015, we used our armed forces to create a reliable shield that prevented terrorists from Syria from penetrating Russia. This was a matter of defending ourselves. We had no other choice, end quote. And he goes on to link this idea that he had no choice in Syria but to invade to the idea that he had no choice but to invade in Ukraine in order to protect Russia from, in this case, the so-called far-right nationalist and neo-Nazis allegedly being propped up by the West. So that would seem to be how Putin, at least in his mind, uh, how he looks at the linkage between these two conflicts. But I wanted to turn it to you uh, to get your perspective. How do you see the nexus between these two Rus Russian interventions, the one in Syria and the one in Ukraine? Do they stem from a similar uh, geopolitical calculus or, or are they more or less distinct in their their motives and ambitions? Well, they, they very much stem from uh, the same geopolitical calculus. And I'm really glad that you brought up uh, these quotes, Cole, because I think they're really critical in helping us understand the connections. What, what these quotes uh, speak to a little bit more broadly is two things. First, Putin's overall aim to erode the liberal rules-based global order. And uh, for as different as the Syria uh, interventions and Ukraine interventions were in terms of how they played out, the one common thread is that both are about eroding the U.S.-led global order. They're both about playing out the Cold War with an alternate ending and ultimately pressing for, uh, pressing for changing the European security architecture. Uh, my second point uh, 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 relates to the first, uh, and it's a little bit more 
um, it's a little bit broader. It's a little bit more historical. When the Russian state looks at at the world, uh, we in the West we tend to separate the European and Middle East theaters. And uh, since the end of the Cold War, especially, there's been uh, a significant decline, unfortunately, in looking at uh, Russia's uh, Middle East activities. The, 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 um, the, the, the overall emphasis has been much more balanced in favor of what Russia does in Europe. But the fact of the matter is, historically, really from the founding of the Russian state, um, the state always looked at what it called, quote unquote, its soft, vulnerable underbelly. And that is a region that includes the Middle East, Central Asia, and the Caucasus, and, and the Black Sea, uh, sort of that entire uh, body of, of water and land as its soft underbelly. And this is where the state historically felt more vulnerable and sought to project uh, power to establish a, a permanent military foothold, not just in the Black Sea, but in the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And there were, there were the, the, the linkages between the two were, were, were very direct. Uh, so if we look at the Ukraine intervention now, for the first time, the Russian state has a, milit a permanent military presence on the Eastern Mediterranean, along with the, Bla with the Black Sea, the Sea of Azov, the, the sort of triad. Uh, so in that sense, there's simply less separation in the, the Russian state mind that we have in the West. That's really interesting. So, so it, you, would you say that it's, it's actually not a historical anomaly for Russia to uh, seek to project power in both of these, what we see as separate uh, theaters? That's exactly right. It is not at all a historical anomaly. It is actually an anomaly for Russia not to be projecting power in these regions. In fact, uh, Catherine the Great, uh, had occupied basically what is now Beirut for approximately two years. And from the uh, the readings that I've done by, by other scholars who did really good work on this, they noted that Russia had, uh, that Russian, uh, the Russian military had written up detailed maps of, of, of that region. You don't start making detailed maps if you don't intend to stay. But historically, what had happened was while Catherine the Great was able to establish uh, the base in Sevastopol and it, they were able to push much more decisively into the Black Sea and, and other bodies of water, the Eastern Mediterranean tended to escape uh, the Russian state on a more permanent basis. But this is where you saw the Soviet Union trying again with the Fifth Escadra. Uh, um, it, 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 it's a repeated scene. And the mm -hmm. permanent uh, military agreement that Russia has for at least the next 50 years, that is unique to Vladimir Putin. Okay, so let's revisit some more about the war in Syria, which you've written about at length. I think it's important to uh, to bring this up because a lot of Americans are simply unaware of the extent of the Russian military intervention in Syria. Um, so could you discuss uh, the scope of Putin's intervention there, when it began, and what, what he's been aiming to achieve in in intervening in Syria? Sure. So, so first and foremost, uh, it's important to note that Putin did not simply appear on the Syrian scene with this scene with a military intervention. He began uh, supporting Assad in multiple ways, in, in all ways really short of a military intervention from the moment protests broke out throughout Syria as part of the wave of the Arab Spring. Uh, and even in the earlier years, it's it's important to note that Putin had worked to return Russia to the Middle East. So it, it's not as if there was no Russia, and all of a sudden there there was Russia. It, it was really um, the next the next logical conclusion uh, of all the other steps that Russia had taken to date. And uh, uh, 
perhaps most importantly, uh, Putin had perceived the West as weak and risk averse, which uh, gave him added confidence to intervene. So it's not so much that he competed with the West for Syria and won as it was a one-sided competition where the West simply was not interested uh, really in, in challenging him. Uh, another key point to note is that in 2013, uh, President Obama famously drew the so-called red line on uh, foreign intervention uh, um, uh, against the Assad regime if Assad used chemical weapons. Assad did use chemical weapons, and rather than enforce the threat, um, Obama uh, rushed to accept Putin's counteroffer of diplomacy uh, and removing of uh, Assad's chemical weapons. Uh, there were two problems with that. First, it was naive to expect uh, Assad's um, uh, chief ally to truly disarm him, and he, the, the entire the entirety of chemical weapons arsenal was not really removed. And second, the world saw that the United States was not going to follow through on a threat, and both allies and adversaries alike uh, drew certain conclusions from that. And so. It's the next year that Putin, inter Putin annexed Crimea from Ukraine, and then the following year he went into Syria militarily. Uh, when he did go into Syria, uh, I guess a few things to note: it was a it was a limited intervention. Uh, focused primarily on air, use of airspace forces with a naval component and a small contingent of ground, elite uh, ground troops. So this was a very surgical intervention aimed precisely uh, at establishing deterrence against the West rather than fighting radical extremists that Putin said Russia was fighting against. Um, and I'm happy to speak more detail uh, about that, but that's the key point. Okay. Yeah, one one other question I have because we're seeing uh, some of these words come up the the Russian playbook in Syria and bombarding cities like Aleppo. Uh, how much was Russia involved in kind of um, bombarding uh, cities like Aleppo? Russia was very much involved, and in fact, uh, like so many others who had watched uh, the Russian campaign in Syria, uh, my initial reaction uh, the moment. Uh, Russia began discussing so-called humanitarian corridors with Ukraine began it was, a, was a flashback to Syria because uh, Putin um, had helped Assad bomb hospitals. Uh, he, uh, they concluded that anybody that had a weapon who was anti-Assad was a legitimate target. And um, the, the, the underlying uh, premise of this tactic is simply um, uh, twofold. First, uh, demoralizing the civilian population uh, uh, into acceptance of Assad. And second, using these brutal tactics to push civilian populations into Assad-controlled territories and also buy him time so he could regroup and ultimately gain ground. And that's exactly what happened time and time again in Syria, whether there was a ceasefire or a de-escalation agreement. Uh, Russia served as a guarantor of a, a number of them, uh, and all of them broke down. All of them ultimately helped Assad gain ground. Okay, so that is what is meant by the Russian playbook, yes. I suppose. Um, I want to turn to something that is, is fairly well known. This is in October 2015. President Obama famously predicted that Russia, this is shortly after its intervention in Syria, that Russia would become bogged down in a, quote, quagmire in Syria. Um, but that surely did not uh, transpire. So how, how, in your view, was Putin able to avoid being bogged down in a quagmire in Syria. Why was President Obama wrong here? 
Sure. And my book goes into a lot more detail about this uh, because uh, President Obama, like, like frankly, so many uh, other analysts, uh, was thinking about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And the assumption was that this will be another Afghanistan for Russia. Right. Uh, but if we, if we looked at how the Russia, uh, how, how Russia actually conducted its campaign, it was precisely designed to avoid an Afghanistan. They learned from that experience and did not want to repeat it. So first, uh, very limited ground troop contingent, focus on aerospace forces uh, to avoid, to, to reduce the number of casualties. And what, what the Russians had done is they unveiled what's called an A to AD kind of lay down by bringing in the, S, the S-400s, which is basically covering Syrian airspace. Uh, the, and the idea was here again, what, what, what this lay down shows is that they were, while they talked about targeting terrorists, uh, ISIS never had an air force. So the purpose for bringing in an air force was really not about targeting ISIS. It was more about uh, a message to us, to the West. Um, the second key component of, of, the, of how Putin kept this, kept this limited is he relied chiefly on Iran and its proxies. Uh, as well as other actors, but chiefly Iran, really, to do most of the heavy lifting. So the, the bulk of the people who were dying in Syria were Iranians. Uh, it was Iran that expended a lot of blood and treasure in Syria, and Russia was sort of able to capitalize on that. Uh, and that's another key component was diplomacy very much an underappreciated aspect of the Russian campaign because we saw, because the military campaign was far more front and center in the news. Uh, Putin was able to do two things. He convinced uh, the West that Russia could be part of a solution. And, and many Western policymakers bought into the idea that Russia could be helpful in Syria, just like uh, the uh, the chemical weapons uh, example. Uh, uh, and uh, and it was very tempting. It was incredibly tempting because there was a grain of truth to that narrative and, and Western policymakers who did not want to get involved to begin with, who were cautious, uh, a little bit cautious about getting too involved in Syria, were willing, uh, were very much willing to believe that idea. Um, and the second piece of it has to do with Putin's broader Middle East, Middle East approach that he pursued from the very beginning of, of coming to power. And that was building contacts with all major actors on the ground who were conflicting with each other other. What he did is he positioned Russia as a mediator, and he was able to get, uh, he was able to promise something to each side. And ultimately, many of those promises went unfulfilled, really most of them. But each side felt that Russia had leverage over it and saw Russia as important. So, um, uh, so uh, there were, so these are some of the key components of how Putin kept the intervention limited in scope, and ultimately, it, it achieved a key objective, which, a key objective of keeping Assad in power, uh, mm -hmm. pushing back against American influence. This was a very much a zero-sum approach, and it is it established a it, it provided Russia with a permanent military presence in a strategically vital part of the world where it always wanted to have that military foothold. Okay, I see a lot of ominous premonitions from the case of Syria um, for. The case of Ukraine, including the so-called Russian playbook of bombarding mm -hmm. cities, um, kind of insincere uh, diplomatic maneuvering. Um, but let's turn to uh, the war in Ukraine now. And, and with everything that we've said about Syria in mind, um, you've been very critical of, of uh, the policy that we've adopted for Syria. Um, so what lessons do you think that the West might learn uh, from the experience in Syria that could apply to Ukraine? I know you've written that Washington needs to show Putin that this, and I'm quoting you here, uh, that this will not be the limited intervention he was able to get away with in Syria. So, so how do we succeed uh, in in making that the, making that um, 
making that true. Sure. Well, so the first lesson is that uh, Putin has never paid a price for his intervention in Syria. He's never paid a price for his, never paid a serious price, frankly, for his previous wars in Georgia and for his illegal annexation of Crimea and the subsequent fighting that he started in, in Eastern Europe. So what brings us to to, to the, pre, the the tragedy of today, uh, we are where we are today uh, at a time when Putin has simply never paid a price. Uh, for what he had done, and uh, instead felt continuously emboldened. Uh, and perhaps due to this feeling of emboldenment, th there's a good Russian expression that appetite comes with eating. Frankly, I think it exists in English as well. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, this is, th I think this is sort of, again, what brings us to today. Now, what's clear is that unlike in Syria, Putin has a uh, F miscalculated on, uh, on on an astonishing scale. The Kremlin expected uh, the Kiev government to fall in two days. But um, uh, but two things stand out about this. Uh, this conflict, first of all, this conflict is already the largest war we saw in Europe since World War II. The, uh, the, the rate of refugee flows uh, is also uh, on World War II levels. We're now at three million people in three weeks. Uh, the scale of destruction, devastation. Um, you know, as, as a Russia analyst, I think what is uh, incredibly disheartening is that this is what it took for the West to finally begin to reassess where it had gone wrong in looking at Russia's strategy, looking at Vladimir Putin in particular, looking at Russian state overall, and that it didn't have to be this tragic. It, this is a very hard lesson to learn. Um, and to go back to your to your, the second part of your question, how, what we need to do, we need to make sure that Putin has a, receives the kind of gets the kind of loss that he does not recover from. Because for all the differences that we now see in the Ukraine campaign in terms of the heavy casualties that Russia is suffering, in terms of the uh, the international isolation, the sanctions, and so forth, there's a lot still that the Russian military can bring to bear on Ukraine. This is not over by a long shot. And this is why you see Zelensky pleading for more weapons. Uh, what, what concerns me is that as the rate of refugees uh, as the flow of refugees continues, experts predicted it would be in five to 10 million even before the fighting started. And given that, that we're at 3 million right now, that's a very realistic scenario. Uh, given the scale of devastation, all of these elements, remember Putin will never go where refugee crisis go unweaponized. This is another tactic that he utilized in Syria. Right. Um, it, all, of this, uh, all of these tactics will create pressure on Western leaders and on Zelensky himself to try to come to a negotiated settlement. And my concern is that if this settlement doesn't fundamentally give Putin a loss, it will only be a, a matter of time before he tries uh, another military incursion again. So in other words, sort of a, a, a wounded Putin, uh, mm -hmm. but one who can return, uh, will only be a Putin who will return. And what that will mean is that all the all these tragic deaths that we saw in the last uh, three weeks, all this, all this destruction ultimately will have been for, for nothing. Okay, so as we as we speak, uh, British intelligence has been assessing that uh, the Russian advance has largely been stalled. The Pentagon is estimating that more than 7,000 Russian troops have been killed since the start of the war three weeks ago, which is more than all the American yeah. troops killed in 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. So I guess the question uh, I want to pose to you here is, is 
the the Russian invasion of Ukraine going to be the quagmire uh, that President Obama had predicted for Syria? Mm. Yeah, you know, another uh, another point I'd like to bring up just for context. Uh, sure. Throughout the entire Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, officially at least, uh, obviously we will never know real numbers, but officially the Soviet Union lost 15,000 troops in the decade of fighting in, this, in, in, in Afghanistan. And so if you compare that number to Russia's current troop losses, that is also pretty astounding. Yeah. Uh, it, that was it, a 10-year intervention. Exactly. That was yeah. a 10-year intervention, and this is three weeks. Um, so uh, this really provides you the full context for how, how wh what losses Russia is, is, is really suffering. Uh, Ukraine very well could turn into another quagmire for Putin. The, the problem is it can also turn into a quagmire for us as well. There, there's still so many unanswered questions, questions here in terms of how this fighting is going to end. Uh, journalists, uh, I often want to know how is this going to end since, since the fighting really began journalists were asking me almost immediately how is this going to end and we still don't quite know how this is going to end what we, what, here's what we do know uh, liberal institutions chiefly the United Nations which were post-war liberal institutions that were designed uh, to prevent war had shown to everybody that they failed they failed to act as they were intended uh, so the very fact that we could not prevent this war is is an incredible blow to 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 liberalism as we envisioned it um, after World War II. Uh, Ukraine, uh, the, the, there's a question of Ukraine reconstruction. How how will Ukraine will be rebuilt? Who will be paying for it? How uh, what will a final settlement look like? And this goes back to my earlier point. What kind of a peace settlement will there be? Uh, analysts often ask about off ramps for Russia. Also, Russia doesn't Russia doesn't like to take off ramps. They like to give off ramps to others. And so, uh, if uh, uh, the, the, the the peace you know, as we speak right now, there are negotiations between the Ukrainian and Russian teams um, about so-called quote-unquote neutrality for Ukraine. I, I'm not, I, I'm very skeptical that these talks will yield any positive results. But um, if Putin succeeds at taking certain strategic uh, parts of Ukraine, uh, militarily, the most successful uh, military campaign in Ukraine was in Ukraine's south, which is connected to the Black Sea. And if Russia takes control of those territories, it will be an incredible blow to Ukraine's economy could render it economically inviable. You can envision uh, a rump state uh, in Ukraine's West, for example, right, with insurgency that right. the West is going to support, with a uh, government in exile that the West is going to support. And yes, you know, a, a situation like that will, of course, be an incredibly draining on Russia's resources, but it will also be very difficult for us. And what I'm seeing happening right now is also there's this sort of euphoria because of how well the Ukrainian military seems to have been doing. They, they've been pushing back. Uh, but a lot of these tactical wins did not yield to uh, real victories on the ground. That's first mm -hmm. point. Uh, and, and the second point, uh, again, uh, by focusing so much on the fact that Putin has already lost, which again I, I do think it, I, I do think is correct um, in, in many ways, we are also deflecting from the fact that we've lost here as well already. Okay, so perhaps we can we can conclude by talking about some of the ramifications that the Ukraine war seems to have in store for the Middle East. We've heard a lot about. Um, how Russia has recently pulled its support, at least temporarily, for relaunching the Iran nuclear deal. 
Um, some of our allies in the Middle East, including Israel and the UAE, have not shown the kind of condemnation of Russia that we might like to see. Um, I'm wondering, how, how do you see the, the, the ramifications of this um, of this conflict in Ukraine playing out for the Middle East? Another thing I, I, I can't help but, but think about is that uh, the United States and Russia ha- have forces that are deployed in northern Syria. There could be potentially some kind of retaliation um, at, in a worst case scenario. What, what do you think? Yeah. Well, first, I think uh, the examples that you point to are, are very important. And what they point to is uh, uh, a lot, a number of shortcomings of our foreign policy in the Middle East for the last, de- approximately the last decade, really since the time when President Obama announced a so-called pivot to Asia, which made our allies in the Middle East very nervous about our commitment to the region. Uh, and th- this has been now a bipartisan trend uh, in our foreign policy since since that moment and so our allies have been uh, diversifying their foreign policy they they've concluded that it's not so much that they uh, want to move away from the United States necessarily. It's that they want to have other options. And so they're cultivating other powers. Uh, they've been cultivating Russia and China. And uh, they also oftentimes feel, now we can discuss whether it's right or wrong, but from their perspective, there's a complete mismatch in terms of how we view uh, our the relationship and how they view the relationship. For example, with the UAE, we felt uh, that we gave them our best out of the art weaponry. Uh, we did uh, the best we possibly could we were a good ally but from their perspective what they wanted was not the weapons but uh, uh, not but also the designation of Houthis as terrorists and uh, that's just the most re- right. the most recent example right and so this spe- speaks to our misunderstanding of the region and how I think we've been losing the region perhaps more than than we recognize well that's very very concerning uh, way to end this <laughs> podcast but that that's how we will do it uh, Anna Borshevskaya thank you very much for being on the caravan podcast I highly recommend that you check out her book Russia's war in Syria as well as her more recent commentary on the crisis in Ukraine, which you can find on her Washington Institute profile. Please subscribe to the Caravan Podcast. We will be back soon for another episode. Thank you very much. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.